Welcome everyone to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast. The Canon Group, Inc. was an American group of companies, including Canon Films, which produced a distinctive line of low to medium budget films from 1967 to 1994. The extensive group also owned, amongst others, a large international cinema chain and a video film company that invested heavily in the video market, buying the international video rights to several classic film libraries. This episode is the first of a series where I will review the films that I have in my personal library that were produced by the Canon Group during the Golan Globus era from 1980 to 1990. We'll review, you know, five-ish films per episode, so we're looking at maybe five or six parts to cover them all. As always, I'm relying on Wikipedia for much of the information about the Canon Group and the films covered, and I'll put links in the show notes. This episode was inspired by the wonderful 2014 documentary, Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon Films, which you should all check out. Here is the high-level story of the Canon Group during the Golan Globus era. So formed in 1967 by Dennis Friedland and Chris Dewey and gained success producing English-language versions of Swedish soft porn. In the 1970s, a string of unsuccessful films and a change in tax laws led to a drop in Canon's value, and in 1979, Friedland and Dewey sold Canon to Mannheim Golan and Joram Globus, I totally butchered their names, for $500,000. So Golan and Globus, they tapped into the ravenous B-movie market. Financing for films was precarious. So pre-sales of next year's films were used to complete films that were currently in production. So the business model was to rely heavily on salesmanship of future uncreated films to finish production of current films. By 1986, output had reached an apex with 43 films in one year, Golan remained chairman of the board while Globus served as president. Film critic Roger Ebert said of Golan Globus in 1987, no other production organization in the world today, certainly not any of the seven Hollywood majors, has taken more chances with serious, marginal films than Canon. That year, Canon gained its greatest artistic successes. Its 1986 Dutch production, The Assault, won the 1987 Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film and a Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Meanwhile, Otello, based on the opera of the same name, also received a Golden Globe nomination that year. On the verge of failure, Canon Films was taken over by Path Communications. This was a couple years later. A holding company controlled by Italian financier Giancarlo Paretti. Financed by the French bank Credit Lyonnais, Path Communications' takeover of Canon immediately be- began a corporate restructuring and refinancing of $250 million to pay off Canon's debt. By 1989, Golan, citing differences with both Paretti and Globus, resigned from his position and left Canon to start 21st Century Film Corporation, while Globus 
remained with path. And that's the end of the era. Just to whet your appetite, I'm going to read from Wikipedia a section on some of the films that brought canon its greatest successes. Although they are most remembered for the Death Wish sequels and Chuck Norris action pictures such as The Delta Force and Invasion USA, great film, and igniting a worldwide ninja craze with the Ninja Trilogy, an anthology series which consisted of Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and Ninja 3, The Domination, by the way, we'll be covering those three films separately, starring Sho Khashoggi, as well as producing the first two American Ninja films and even the vigilante thriller Exterminator 2, the sequel to 1980's The Exterminator, Cannon's output was actually far more varied with musical and comedy films such as Breakin', Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, The Last American Virgin, and the U.S. release of The Apple. Period drama pictures such as Lady Chatterley's Lover, Bolero, Matahari, Science fiction and fantasy films such as Hercules, Life Force, The Barbarians, as well as serious pictures such as John Cassavetti's Love Streams, Zeffirelli's Otello, a film version of the Verdi opera, Norman Mailer's Tough Guys Don't Dance, and Andrei Konchalovsky's Runaway Train and Shy People, and action-adventure films such as the 3D Treasure of the Four Crowns, King Solomon's Mines, and Cobra. Now, I don't have all those films listed, but I do have quite an extension, uh, uh, an excessive collection of canon films. So I'm going to list some of them here. I may be missing a couple, but we're going to go through most of them. Okay, The Godsend, The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood, Contamination, Schizoid, New Year's Evil. We'll be covering all those today. Hospital Massacre, Death Wish 2, Breakin', The Naked Face, I'm Almost Not Crazy, Exterminator 2, The Company of Wolves, Maria's Lovers, Missing in Action, Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, Rappin', Missing in Action 2, Hot Chili, Thunder Alley, American Ninja, Rock Hard Zombies, sorry, Hard Rock Zombies, Freudian Slip, Invasion USA, The Berlin Affair, Death Wish 3, Runaway Train, Hell Squad, Invaders from Mars, The Delta Force, The Naked Cage, Highlander, Cobra, I've already talked about Cobra on a previous podcast, America 3000, Thunder Run, The Avenging, excuse me, Avenging Force, Hollywood Harry, 52 Pickup, Business as Usual, The Barbarians, Down Twisted, Rumpelstiltskin, American Ninja 2, Shy People, Gore, Three Kinds of Heat, Death Wish 4, Superman 4, I might skip that. Masters of the Universe, Penitentiary 3, Tough Guys Don't Dance, Doing Time on Planet Earth, Missing in Action 3, Alien from L.A., Bloodsport. You bet I'll be covering that. Salsa, American Ninja 3, Kickboxer, Delta Force 2, American Ninja 4, 
And of course, the uh, I won't be covering this, but the Electric Boogaloo documentary 2014. Definitely check that out. It goes through, it's like watching trailers of all the canon films and they give background and interviews. It's really good. I love these types of movies. There are a few different like this. Um, this one is wonderful. Um, I, I mentioned just briefly as well that I do have the uh, the Ninja Trilogy, which um, will be reviewed as a separate episode. And it's um, so the Enter the Ninja Trilogy involves three canon films from the 80s, all with Sho Khashoggi. I'm saying his name wrong, too, in a leading role. The films are Enter the Ninja 1981, Revenge of the Ninja Revenge of the Ninja, 1983, and Ninja 3, The Domination, 1984. There's actually a good uh, interview on YouTube with Lucinda Dickey, and she's from uh, the Ninja 3, Ninja 3, The Domination. She's also in uh, uh, Breakin' and Breakin' 2. She's very sexy. So let's start with uh, The Godsend, 1980. Director Gabrielle Beaumont. Actors Malcolm Stoddard and Cy Heyman. I don't know anybody in this film. I'd never heard of this film before I watched it. Produced, obviously, by the Canon Group, Inc. Release date, April, oh, sorry, January 25th, 1980. I was three years old. Uh, budget, no idea. Runtime, about 93 minutes. Here's a plot summary. I'm going to go from Wikipedia for most of these because I didn't want to rewrite them, but... Alan and Kate Marlowe are out on a walk with their kids, Davy, Lucy, Sam, and baby Matthew. Kate meets a pregnant stranger and she comes home with them. It's apparent that Alan finds something off about her right away as she intensely stares at him, but he doesn't say anything. Left briefly unattended, she cuts their telephone line Alan is about to drive her home, but she goes into labor, and Kate helps her deliver a baby girl. The next day, Kate sees the woman is gone, having abandoned the child with them. Despite Alan's reservations, Kate wants to keep the baby, whom they name Bonnie. Later on, they find Matthew dead in a playpen with Bonnie. At a family picnic, Davy and Bonnie wander off, and they search for them desperately. Kate finds Bonnie on the bank of a creek with scratches on her hands, while Alan finds that Davy has drowned in the creek. Alan attempts to perform CPR on Davy, but is unsuccessful. Later, Kate and Alan agree that the scratches on Bonnie must have been from Davy saving her. Bonnie starts to break things, and Sam gets blamed for them, despite him saying he didn't do it. Kate attributes this to Sam's jealousy of Bonnie. One day, the family is playing hide-and-go-seek, and Alan finds Sam dead in a barn. Later, Alan finds Bonnie's ribbon next to where Sam's body was. The Marlows begin to receive letters accusing them of killing their children, and Kate falls into a depression. When a reporter comes to their house and upsets Kate, Alan agrees to move the family to London. Bonnie becomes ill with the mumps and purposely kisses Alan as he, wake, as he takes a nap. He becomes ill with the mumps too and has a flashback in a dream to the circumstances of the deaths of his sons and Bonnie being nearby in each one. At a playground, Alan watches Bonnie throw an unoccupied swing in the path uh, of a swing Lucy is swinging on. The chains on the swing twist together, but Lucy does not fall off. 
and Alan is able to save her before she's hurt. Alan tries to discuss his concerns with Bonnie, with Kate, saying she is not normal. Kate strongly disagrees, saying that Bonnie loves Lucy and was only playing. Alan says Bonnie loves Lucy the same way she loved their three boys, and Kate is disgusted at the insinuation. Alan tells Kate his theories about Bonnie being involved in the deaths, but she is still in disbelief. Alan uses an analogy about Bonnie, saying that a cuckoo bird lays its eggs in another nest, and the fledgling pushing the others out to get the full attention of the parents. Alan wants to send Bonnie away, but Kate refuses, so he kidnaps Lucy. Alan goes to see Kate, who is distraught that Alan will not tell her where Lucy is. Alan gives Kate an ultimatum to choose Bonnie or Lucy. She refuses to do so and leaves. Later, they find out that Kate has had an accident and is in the hospital. Alan rushes back to London, where he learns that Kate has been pregnant but miscarried due to the accident. Back at their apartment, Alan finds out from a neighbor, Mr. Taverner, that Kate tripped over a doll at the top of the staircase and that Mrs. Taverner has taken Bonnie on a trip. Kate comes to Alan's work to tell Alan she wants a divorce. He is alarmed to learn that Bonnie is home alone with Lucy. Alan calls Lucy, telling her to go next door to the Taverners. Bonnie has them locked in, and as Kate and Alan get home, Bonnie has used mind control on Lucy to make her jump out of a window to her death. Alan tells, tries to kill Bonnie, but Mr. Taverner pulls him off of her. Kate decides to stay with Bonnie, and Alan leaves her. At a park, Alan sees the strange woman who gave birth to Bonnie and is now pregnant again and talking to another mother. He unsuccessfully runs after them to warn the family, but they are already gone. That was a long, long plot summary. Um, I obviously read all that from Wikipedia. I I don't know. Got a bit lazy here. Um, I really don't like recreating plot summaries that are already written in Wikipedia. It's just unfortunate when sometimes they're extremely long and detailed when you kind of need like, you know, a 45 second, 60 second once over and it turns into like an eight minute story. Here, I'm rambling further though. Um, so I had a lot of thoughts about this uh, movie. Not a lot, but a few thoughts. So are there any really good scenes is one of the things I like to look for in these movies. And one thing to bring up is um, when Alan tries to convince Kate that Bonnie is deliberately trying to harm slash kill her siblings, he uses the metaphor of the cuckoo that lays its eggs in another nest and the hatchlings pushing the other birds out of the nest in order to get the full attention of the parents. The opening shot of the film is from the point of view of a bird flying over the countryside. And then we see the Marlowe family walking through a field and the point of view passes over the family and in front of them. And then we see Alan Marlowe with his kids running ahead of his wife uh, who's holding a baby. And when he turns around and looks back at his wife through these binoculars, he sees his wife speaking with the pregnant stranger. The pregnant stranger stares expressionless back at Alan, even though she's way too far away for a human to see him clearly. So that scene was really well done, and it fits with the cuckoo metaphor really well. So when you re-see it after you know about the cuckoo metaphor, it makes a lot more sense. 
And in the final scene of the film, Alan is walking around a pond with his friend when he sees the pregnant stranger across the pond and she is staring back at him uh, like in the beginning. Um, And she walks off with the young family and Alan runs around the pond to warn the family, but it's too late. That whole part was really well done. Like the metaphor, the opening scene, the ending scene. They really tied up the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie with that metaphor. And that kind of really worked for me very well. Um, One of the things I didn't like about this movie or that was, it's not that I didn't like it, but it was hard to put up with was um, the children getting killed. Like, I think if you're making a movie and in it there's a bunch of kids who get killed, it's going to turn a lot of people off. That's, That's kind of a risky move. Um, it was necessary for the plot, um, and it wasn't done distastefully. I mean, it didn't show graphic, gory violence with the children, but um, it's unavoidable that people cringe a little bit at that. Interesting facts about the film. The Pregnant Stranger is played by actress, actress uh, Angela Pleasance, who's the daughter of Donald Pleasance. Gone. He's gone from here. The evil is gone. So what's the verdict on this one? Uh, Watch it once. All right, next one. The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood from 1980. Director, producer, Alan Roberts. Martine Beswick. I guess she is a former Bond girl. She was in From Russia with Love and Thunderball. Um, And Adam West, of course, from Batman. One of the great hammy actors of all time um this one was released by canon films of course release date was may 10th 1980 runtime 88 minutes here's the plot summary from wikipedia the happy hooker goes hollywood originally released in the uk as hollywood blue is a 1980 film starring two-time bond girl martine beswick adam west phil silvers Chris Lemon, Eddie Adams, not the one from Boogie Nights, and Richard Deacon. The film, The Last of a Trilogy, good lord, is loosely based on the life of Xavier Hollander, Xaviera Hollander, a prostitute from the Netherlands, as she attempts to make a film in Hollywood based on her best-selling book about her life. She gets involved with some of the most crooked producers in Hollywood, but beats them at their own game and films the movie without them. Yeah, so this is a terrible movie. Um, Skip it. Absolutely skip it. It's not funny. Um, There's a little bit of nudity, and Adam West is in it, but there are no other redeeming factors. It's not good. So next up, Contamination, uh, also known as Alien Contamination from 1980. Directed by Luigi Cosi, uh, starring Ian McCullough, Louise Marlowe, Marino Massey, or Mass. Um, distribution, obviously, Canon Film Group. Release date, May 9th, 1980, in Germany. Um, runtime was 82 minutes, although there are other versions that run a little longer. I think this is the American version I have. Um, it's about 82 minutes. I think the German version is more like 90-ish minutes. Plot summary from Wikipedia. 
A large ship drifts into New York Harbor, seemingly abandoned. The ship is discovered to be carrying large containers of coffee, hidden inside of which are a series of football-sized green eggs. The crew sent in to explore the ghost ship find the mutilated remains of the former crew gathered in one place, and they soon discover the reason why. When disturbed, the green eggs explode, spraying a vicious liquid over everything. The liquid is toxic to living creatures and causes the body to immediately explode. The military's answer to this phenomenon is Colonel Stella Holmes. That's Marlowe. She establishes a link between the green eggs and a recent mission to Mars that ended badly for the two astronauts who descended to the planet. One of them disappeared, and the other, Commander Hubbard McCullough, had a breakdown and subsequently became an alcoholic. When pressed, Hubbard agrees to help Holmes in her investigation of the insidious plot to bring the deadly eggs to Manhattan. And it takes them, along with sarcastic New York cop Tony Aris Masse, to a Colombian coffee plantation. All is not as it seems. Hubbard's former astronaut colleague is apparently alive and well and living under the influence of a monstrous alien cyclops, which is using mind control to further its plot to flood the world with the green eggs and wipe out human life on Earth. Wow, what a bizarre film. Uh, it's a wonderful film, though. It's really fast-paced. There's a really clear objective. It's a totally wacky plot. The creature at the end, the Cyclops, is really like it's unexpected and it's outrageous, but it was super cool. Um, the film is very clearly heavily influenced by Ridley Scott's Alien with the eggs, um, kind of in the shape of it's more like rugby balls, I guess, than, than footballs. And they're kind of like they pulse and glow, this green kind of glow. And it's very, um, like, the, the art is sort of like uh, an alien, where it's dark and there's, like, neon kind of glowing, uh, bioluminescent sort of look. Yeah, it's really well done. I think I was actually reading an article somewhere. I'm not sure what it was. but And I think they were saying that, yes, it was heavily influenced by Alien. I mean, it's obvious, even if you if you haven't read anything about it. But, um, yeah. Uh, the director, Luigi Cozy. He also directed Star Crash in 1978, which I'll be reviewing in another episode. Um, there's actually um, Shout Factory put out a really cool Roger Corman B-movie, like 11-part series. And uh, I think I'm going to do a, an episode for each of the parts, going through the movies you talked about in each of the, in each of the episodes. So I'll be reviewing it there. Um, and the director, Luigi Cozy, would also go on to direct Hercules through Canon Group, which we'll be going over later, and The Adventures of Hercules in 1985, which we'll also be going over. Um, yeah, so this one is a, uh, a, a good example of an awesome B-movie. Like, it's a B-movie all the way. There's poor audio quality, poor video quality. It sounds like it's dubbed into English. There's poor acting, there's weak dialogue, and yet it's extremely enjoyable. It's got a totally wacky plot, and it's a lot of fun. Um, so this one is highly rewatchable. Next up, Schizoid from 1980, directed by David Paulson, 
actors, uh, Klaus Kinski. Distribution, obviously the Canon Group. Release date, September 5th, 1980. Don't know what the budget is. Runtime, 91 minutes. Plot summary from Wikipedia. Julie, Mariana Hill, is an advice columnist for the city newspaper who begins to receive anonymous notes threatening murder and worse. At about the worse than murder? At about the same time, female members of the group therapy session she attends are being stabbed one by one by an unknown assailant. Is there a connection? If so, why do the notes talk about murder with a gun while the murder victims are being stabbed? At first, the police, her ex-husband, her therapist, and her friends all assure her that the notes are probably unrelated and hoax. But with time, it becomes apparent that someone close to her is responsible. Ooh, I did not like this one. No, it was fine. It was just a standard slasher movie. Um, I didn't really... I, I don't know. There were some twists and turns, and at the end, I don't even remember. It was forgettable. Like, I don't even remember kind of what happened exactly at the end. Like, I think it was a daughter, or... I don't even know. It just... It was, it was totally forgettable. I would say watch it once. You could even skip it. You wouldn't be missing anything. All right, last one up. New Year's Evil from 1980. Directed by Emmett Alston. Actors, Roz Kelly. I believe she was in, like, Happy Days or something like that. Oh, yeah, she was the Fonz's girlfriend. And some guy named Kip Niven. I didn't know it was possible for people to actually be named Kip. I thought it was just a joke name, like from Napoleon Dynamite. Distributed by the Canon Group. Um, released December 19th, 1980. Good timing, right before New Year's. Um, it'd be worth going to see in the theater. Plot summary from Wikipedia. As the film begins, New Year's Eve is on its way, and television's most famous punk rock lady icon, Diane Sullivan, or Blaze, as her fans call her, is holding a late-night countdown celebration of music and partying, televised live from a Hollywood hotel. All is going well until Diane receives a phone call from an odd-sounding stranger claiming his name is Evil, who announces on live television that when the clock strikes midnight in each time zone, a naughty girl will be punished, a.k.a. murdered. Uh, then the killer signs off with a threat claiming that Diane will be the last naughty girl to be punished. The studio crew takes safety measures and heightens security, but a string of murders occur across Los Angeles at each stroke of midnight across each time zone. The killer records his victims as he murders them and calls back to the station each time, playing the tapes back to prove that he's serious. Diane's son Derek arrives but is mostly ignored by his mother, causing him to start behaving very erratically due to Diane's lack of interest in his life. There are many suspects as to who the mysterious killer and caller is. A crazed fan, a religious psychotic, or maybe it is someone much closer to Diane than anyone could have ever expected. Evil eventually infiltrates Diane's party, and upon confronting her is revealed to be Diane's husband, Richard, who was previously thought to be too busy to attend. Richard reveals his motivation to be similar feeling of neglect and anger of Diane, uh, of Diane's and other women's treatment of him. 
He gets caught by security trying to kill Diane and flees from the scene. He races toward the rooftop where he commits suicide by jumping. Diane is loaded into an ambulance while Derek is seen wearing the killer's old mask in the ambulance with the corpse of the medic at the front. I'm fed up. You are just like every other lady in my life. Derek told me about the way you behave around other men. Derek also told me about the way you try to turn on your own son, and that is not nice. Ladies are not very nice people. They are manipulative and deceitful and immoral and very, very selfish. That scene makes me think of this quote that I think gets attributed to Margaret Atwood. Men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. And in the film, uh, both the son and the husband seem to act this exact way. That is, they're both acting like they're, they've got their feelings hurt. And their reaction, in the husband's case, is to murder people. And then in the son's case, at the end of the film, finally, is to murder people. Um, so there seems like there's some social commentary there about how uh, men are so violent in the world. And um, this is how they treat women, etc. Now, another scene um, before the killer commits suicide by jumping off the roof of the building, he quotes Shakespeare's Hamlet. Here's the clip. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. So one of the themes of Hamlet is death and revenge. Hamlet is avenging his father's death and his mother's betrayal. Now at the end of this film, uh, as the killer lies dead on the parking lot after jumping off the building, his son comes over and hugs him and takes his clown mask then in the next scene, we see the son wearing the clown mask while driving the ambulance that is taking his mother to the hospital. And there's a dead paramedic in the cab of the ambulance with him. So what else did I like or not like about the film? Um, in the beginning, the film shows lots of shots of the, quote, punk band performing to the live audience and partygoers dancing. And it's really lame and hard to get into. But once the premise of the film has been established with a few hourly kills and phone calls to the countdown host for proof, the film begins to focus more on the killer uh, and it gets much more fun and interesting um, in the sense of you know who will get killed next and how will the killing be done? And will the killer have any close calls and almost get caught? Um, a live concert a scene like that just falls flat with me. Um, I felt like it was trying to be hip and cool, but it just kind of came across as lame. I do sort of appreciate what they're trying to do, but it just never seems to work in my opinion. Another interesting fact about this film is um, 
The song, New Year's Evil, was written by Roxanne Seaman and Eddie Del Barrio and is performed on camera by the Seattle rock band Shadow, who appear as punk rock band in the film playing the song at the opening of the movie and repeatedly throughout the recorded studio version also appears in the film. So that's it for this episode. Next installment of the Canon Group Films That I Own, Part 2, I will be covering Hospital Massacre from 1981, um, Breakin' from 1984, The Naked Face from 1984, I'm Almost Not Crazy from 1984, and The Exterminator 2 from 1984. So full disclosure, I do have some other canon films that fall during that time, but I'm going to be um, covering them in, in different episodes. So, for instance, I have Revenge of the Ninja and Enter the Ninja, which both come in that time period, but will be covered in a separate episode. And Death Wish 2, I'm going to be covering as a part of the all four Death Wish movies episode. So we'll do that separately. Thank you for listening today. Check out the show notes for this episode or any episode on my website at ptpod.xyz. The show notes contain the links to all my sources and products that were referenced in the episode. You can write a glowing review of my podcast on iTunes or Google Play. There are handy-dandy links in the menu on my website at ptpod.xyz. And you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash PT Pod. The intro music for today's episode was Sweeter Vermouth, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Check out the link in the show notes.